And they will be at the Speak Out tomorrow at Benson High School. So look for someone in a red T-shirt. Sounds great. And we are flat out of time. Thank you both for joining us for this super important discussion. This was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Ani. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much, Ani. Thank you, Linda. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the 9th Annual Keaton Otis Memorial on Sunday, May 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Maranatha Church in Portland. Keaton Otis was killed by Portland Police May 12, 2010. Every month since his murder, a vigil has been held at the spot he died. The event will include artists, community members, and leaders. Refreshments and information about the monthly vigils held at Northeast 6th and Halsey where Keaton was killed. Again, that's the 9th Annual Keaton Otis Memorial on Sunday, May 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Maranatha Church, 4222 Northeast 12th Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of The More Who Die, The Less We Care, Confronting Genocide and the Deadly Arithmetic of Compassion, on Thursday, May 9th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education in Portland. The More Who Die, The Less We Care. Why does this occur? Professor Paul Slovak will discuss why people and governments ignore mass murder and genocide. His most recent work examines psychic numbing and the failure to respond to mass human tragedies. Again, that's The More Who Die, The Less We Care, on Thursday, May 9th, from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Oregon Jewish Museum and Center for Holocaust Education, 724 Northwest Davis Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. And this is KBOO Portland. It's 9.02, which means it is definitely time for the beloved community with host John Shuck. So let's just get right to it. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is bitterness. This is the thing I'm concerned about. Let us fight passionately and unrelentingly for the goal of justice and freedom. Let's be sure that our hands are clean in the struggle. Let us never fight with falsehood and violence and hate and malice, but always fight with love so that when the day comes that the walls of segregation have completely crumbled in Montgomery, that we will be able to live with people as our brothers and sisters. Good morning. This is The Beloved Community. My name is John Schuck. You hear The Beloved Community every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO Portland and uh, around the world at kboo.fm or 90.7 in the Portland metro. Uh, My day job, I'm actually a minister. I am a Presbyterian minister. Uh, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton is is where I serve, and I'm happy to do this monthly program. It's a marvelous outlet for radical ideas about religion, Uh, ideas I don't think you often hear in many churches, Uh, issues regarding justice and economic justice and anti-war and sustainability and things that I think we should be talking about, and that what this program is, Beloved Community, uh, looks at the intersection of spirituality and social justice. My website is uh, progressivespirit.net. I just uh, returned well, this past fall from a trip to Iraq, and um, there I went on a pilgrimage to Arba'in, which is uh, joining 15 to 20 to 30, perhaps, million 
other uh, pilgrims to the shrine of Imam Hussein, who is the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad. And his story is a story of martyrdom on the battlefields of uh, Karbala uh, 1,400 years ago. He and his 26 companions, or 72 companions, rather, uh, were outnumbered by uh, 30,000 who wanted him to submit to a corrupt politician, and as a matter of conscience, he would not do it. And so his martyrdom is highly uh, celebrated, uh, grieved, mourned, and emulated by those who follow him wherever there is injustice and his victory uh, carries on by those who follow in his spirit and I had uh, the great opportunity to attend that uh, this past fall as a, a gift from the Husseiniya Islamic Society of Seattle uh, sent me and a cameraman and we ended up making a movie about it and that's why I'm talking about it because the movie is now out and you can watch it on YouTube if you can find it uh, Some for some reason the search engines are having troubles finding it but it is there for love of Hussein and has already had 30,000 views and uh, you might be interested in this 30 minute film of a Christian pastor uh, going to Iraq uh, to the shrine of Imam Hussein, the prophet of Muhammad, peace be upon him. That's the spirit I think I try to make in terms of the beloved community. Uh, the evil that we face in this world is huge. The mountains are high, and both of my guests this morning are those who climb them despite the height and despite the obstacles, seeking truth, seeking justice seeking reconciliation, sometimes perhaps even seeking forgiveness. My first guest this first half hour is Eve Ensler. She is the author of The Vagina Monologues, and her latest book out is called The Apology. Uh, it is coming out actually uh, just a few days in May 15th. And she, in The Apology, like millions of women, Eve Ensler has been waiting much of her lifetime for an apology. Sexually and physically abused by her father, Eve has struggled her whole life from this betrayal, longing for an honest reckoning from a man who is long dead. After years of work as an anti-violence activist, she decided she would wait no longer. An apology could be imagined by her, for her, to her. The apology written by Eve from her father's point of view, in the words she longed to hear, attempts to transform the abuse she suffered with unflinching truthfulness, compassion, and an expansive vision for the future. Her website is eveensler.org, and she's with me on the phone. Welcome, uh, Eve Ensler, to the Bluff community. Thank you, John. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. Thank you so much for spending the time uh, with us today and, uh, and for sharing this powerful book, The Apology, uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to the decision to write this story this way? Yes. Um, well, I think there's a bunch of directions from, from which it evolved. Um, first of all, I've been active in the anti-violence movement, the movement to end violence against women for many, many years as a, a activist, as a writer, and as a human being, <laughs> as a woman. And I think... Over the last 21 years, we have seen women speak out. We've seen women break the silence. We've seen women tell their stories. We've seen women call men um, to accountability. But I was thinking, um, really, in the last few years with the new iteration of Me Too, um, and with more and more women coming out to say Me Too, this has happened to me, I, we're the men. <laughs> And why aren't we hearing men um, beginning to make um, reckonings, make apologies? I, I, was, I was going through and reading um, a couple of men who have been accused and have lost jobs, and I read a couple of their pieces, and it seemed the pieces were filled more with self-pity and, oh, look what happened to me, than real self-interrogation, real investigation of, of oneself, of how did I get to be a man who could beat a woman or rape a woman or choke a woman or harass a woman? What in my childhood informed that? What in the patriarchal culture informed that? What about toxic masculinity have I absorbed? And I really couldn't find one. Um, real, true apology. And, and I was thinking, if men um, do not come to the table now 
and begin to look at themselves and begin to do this kind of investigation and make authentic, thorough, detailed apologies, we're going to be spinning our wheels for the next, you know, 12 years if we get them. <laughs> um, so I decided, well, what is an apology and what would it look like? I myself have been waiting, you know, 60 years for an apology from my father who passed 31 years ago. And I thought to myself, well, why don't I write an apology to myself from him and say the words that I long to hear? And that was really the evolution of the piece. So I wrote a letter to myself in the voice of my father trying to let myself go into him and him go into me um, to see if I could conjure up his past, his childhood, the whys of what he did, um, his pain, his brokenness, and then for him to really make a thorough, deep, rich, detailed accounting. In uh, the apology that you wrote to yourself in, in, in your father's voice, it was any of that ever expressed by him in his in his own life did he ever have a sense of remorse or apology to you no he didn't my father was of the generation um, where men are always right they ruled the house they were tyrants um, and to be honest with you you know he says at one point in the book um, to be a man who apologizes is to be a traitor and I think there is a real truth to that I think that if men were to begin to truly apologize and truly say, I know what I did was wrong and here's what I did and, and I feel what you felt when I did this to you and I am racked by that pain and I take, a, I, you know, I take responsibility for that pain and I evidence that I'm never going to do this again. In some ways, I think it would be the, the toppling or the beginning of the toppling of patriarchy because as he says in the book, once one man apologizes, the whole system begins to crumble. Yeah, it's uh, he's betrayed the boys' club in some sort. Mm-hmm, exactly. As Tony Porter at Cold Men says, the, there's a man box, and when we, we break out of that man box, we betray all the, the brothers and, and men who have signed up for that particular um, system. <laughs> Speaking with Eve Ensler, she's the author of The Apology, which is coming out uh, May 15th. Uh, uh, an apology, a letter uh, that she wrote in, in your own imagination uh, from your father's point of view to you. Uh, you know, maybe a, a basic definition, because people talk about apologies a lot. Oh, I'm sorry this, sorry that, and, and especially abusers are often so sorry all of the time, right away. Uh, but what is an authentic apology? What are some of the characteristics of that? That's a great question, and I think you know, it's funny you were talking this morning about being a minister. I'm giving a sermon on Sunday, ah. um, which I've never done before, and I'm, I'm going to talk about apology. I've been thinking a lot that we, we teach children how to pray, and we teach children um, about the devotion of prayer and the concentration of prayer and the humility of prayer and, the, the, you know, to, to honestly petition something outside yourself. I think an apology is a humbling. It's making yourself vulnerable. It's an equalizer. No one's above or below. I think it, it's a true accounting, a detailed accounting, and I, I want to say that the liberation really comes through the details of really marking and stating what exactly you've done. It's allowing yourself to feel what your victim has felt. It's, it's, it's taking... Um, it's really going into the whys of why have I done what I have done? What led me to become someone who could do this? And, it, and in some ways, I think we live in a country that has kind of diabolical amnesia. We, we forget what happens in our families. We have denial about that. We forget what's happened to our indigenous brothers and sisters and that original story of pillaging and destruction and, and murdering and rape and, and colonization. We forget what's happened to African Americans in this country in hundreds of years of slavery and then Jim Crow and mass incarceration. I think what an apology is is a remembering, a reattaching, a reconnecting. It forces you to go back and, and really state and claim and, 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 and admit what what did occur actually did occur. And I think a way of bringing everybody into a kind of common present tense by admitting what's occurred in the past. Have, have you ever, I guess my question, I'm, I'm almost cynical about this, Eve Ensler, can abusers ever truly apologize? Or is it really almost always a wish? Have you seen this 
happen? Um, I've heard of, of several programs that are being done in prisons where, um, where um, people who are incarcerated are being taken through processes of true apologies, and I've heard they are incredibly effective and are doing in, 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 and bringing back great transformation. I have to believe it is possible, but there has to be a willingness. And what catalyzes that willingness you know, I think one of the reasons I wrote this book is to be part of that catalyzation process, to say, here is a possible blueprint of what it would look like to make an apology. And I also discovered something really interesting, that, you know, we all, those of us who have been victimized and hurt and invaded and raped and violated, we often carry that perpetrator in our own bodies and beings. And I know for me, I have been in dialogue with my father, consciously or not, for 60-some-odd years. And I realized something writing this book, that I've been kind of caught in this vice of being a permanent, or what felt like a permanent victim to his perpetrator. And in writing this book, I, because I went into him and I changed his trajectory and his decisions, I moved him inside me from being a perpetrator to and a monster to being an apologist. And that shifted something so dramatically inside my own self. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, one of these kind of Beckett optimists that I, I keep believing in spite of the fact that there's no reason to believe. Uh-huh. And, and at the same time, I also think that if you can't get an apology from your perpetrator, you can actually write one from him to yourself, and it will have profound impact. In, in the book... Um uh, your father refers to himself as shadow man or that part that kind of took over. And that's, and that seems to me what you were just saying, the part that you were able to kind of get out of yourself too mm-hmm. by having mm-hmm. him do this. And, and, and so I w- that was my next question was what this experience was for you to write it. Was it, was it painful? Was it cathartic? It was everything. Everything. And, and I, before I say, address that, I just want to say one thing. Like, I want to make clear this book is an offering. It's not a prescription. It's not a have to. Mm-hmm. I think all survivors know where they are in this process. And it's, it's, it's not, I think it, 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 it speaks to you as something you feel driven to do great. And if it doesn't, that's fine. I think we all have a timetable in our own recoveries and our transformations. So I just want to really preface that. Um, I don't want it to be another thing that survivors feel like they have to do, you know. Um, but in terms of my father um, and writing this book, I think it was um, revelatory. It was devastating. I think I have always fended off uh, um, uh, against feeling what my father felt or, or his childhood or his brokenness or his pain because, frankly, I didn't care and I didn't want to know what his pain was. And I think in going into his pain, I began to answer some of those haunting whys. Why would my father uh, sexually abuse why would my father beat me almost to the point of murder? Why would my father want to kill his own child, right? Uh, those whys have haunted me my whole life. And I think by going into him and conjuring him, I began to understand my father's own story and what led him to become the kind of man who could ultimately become a sadist. And that was very, very liberating, very freeing. And I think the whole experience was liberating. Eve Ensler is my guest, and she's going to be with me for about another 10 minutes or so. Uh, if you would like to speak uh, with her, have a question or a comment, uh, please uh, call the studio line, 503-231-8187. That's 231-8187. Eve, what did you, uh, of, of all of these um, apologies and accounts uh, that uh, your father gave in this book through you, uh, what would you say is the most important? What, what did you most want to hear from your father? I needed to hear, and I know this may sound strange, my father knew what he was doing. I needed to know that he took responsibility for his own um, malevolent sadistic consciousness, that it wasn't an accident, it wasn't something that unconsciously happened. And I I needed him to admit that and to say that that was true because I always felt that was true. I also think that um, because my father sexually abused me at a very young age, um, he explained things to me that um, I, I kind of always felt that, you know, my father was a, a, an adored boy, 
But by being adored, um, it kind of robbed him of being a human being. He wasn't allowed to make mistakes. He wasn't allowed to cry. He wasn't allowed to express imperfection. He wasn't allowed ever to express that he was lost or confused. And so he buried all that. It went underground. And, and, he, and with it, he buried his heart and his tenderness. And when he had a, a little girl child, it just ripped open his heart and his tenderness and a flood of feelings that he had no capacity to contain or handle or deal with. And he, 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 he basically went to, I think, a go-to place, which was to, um, you know, have sex, um, to, 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 to kind of own it, dominate it, um, have it, rather than just letting himself sit in those massive feelings of tenderness and vulnerability. And um, that was a real eye-opener for me. I think what happens to men in patriarchy is we, we, we early kill off their humanity. We don't let them be lost. We don't let them express tenderness or cry or doubt or, or, or need or any of those things. And, 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 and in doing that, we, we turn them into hard-hearted people who are capable then later in life of raping someone who's screaming no and they're having no feelings for what that woman is saying to them. So I think that was a very profound um, realization. Um, and in the end, um, my father really took step-by-step um, -step accountability in this letter for everything he did to me. And, and I learned the progression of his brutality and the escalation of his brutality and why that happened. I'm speaking with Eve Ensler. This is The Beloved Community. And uh, we have uh, Edie on the phone. Good evening. Good morning. Good morning, um, Edie. So I've been thinking that um, in addition to us so importantly needing to um, give ourselves the empathy and the compassion, be ready to have curiosity to find out where someone else is and say, what would... what that would meet my need and this apology does and um and then through that we humanize the other which then humanizes us and that liberates us um there's different love languages but there's also different apology languages and i try to teach my kids um i'm sorry isn't enough um we have to acknowledge as you said uh what what are the specific actions that i did and what was its impact and, and what needs or values was it violating the other person or not just assuming, but I can guess and check and, and have them confirm or, or correct um, and, and empathy for that. And then after my behavior, their needs and feelings, um, um, showing that I really value that person and the regret and I have to change my behavior, have an action plan and and confirm with them what would work for them while I'm also working on changing me and accountability for when. And then maybe later, if I've earned trust, if they've had some healing and they want to, I can ask for forgiveness um, after I've proven I'm trustworthy and they don't have to give it. Um, but when I go through those five languages of, of apology and the five languages of love, of of words of affirmation, of gifts, of, of respectful touch, uh, and space of um, service and activities shared together, then I'm at a healing place, and I'm less apt to do that harm, and I'm more trustworthy. Does right. that work for you? Thank you, Edie. Um, could, could, could you make any of that, Eve? Yeah, that sounds exactly right. Yep. Uh -huh. All right. <laughs> now, you know, your father died 31 years ago. Um and of course, this is this is a, this is a post mortem book, a post mortem a whole, whole experience. Uh, almost, uh, you need to actually create uh, the persona that you wanted here. Uh, had had he lived, uh, and, and we thought, and, and Edie was just talking about much of that apology is, is you know, when when some, when someone's died, the story's closed. Um, could it have happened? Do you think had he been had he lived longer? I don't think so. Okay. I don't know. I don't know, but he, the story isn't closed really inside you until it's closed, you uh -huh. know? You know, the story lives on. And I think, I think one of the things that we forget about the impact of violence against women is how long it lives on and how thorough and deadly the impact is. And I think um, 
you know, one of one of the wonderful things about doing this book is the discovery of how it can finally be uprooted, you know, and transformed inside oneself. You know, I'd like to believe my father um, would have come to consciousness, but I think my father was, was from an age and from a time that it was so embedded in his DNA, his authority and his sense of, of domination and control that I'm not sure he could have made that journey in this lifetime, you know. Um, but he's made it in his next And I'll tell you something I learned. Um, we, the dead really need us to be in dialogue with them. The dead really appreciate communication from us because I think sometimes they are caught in zones that they can't get free from. And our, um, our, our, our willingness to be in that dialogue, I really do believe, frees spirits and souls from other dimensions. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think that uh, is critically important on so many levels. Your mother makes... Uh, a couple of appearances in this book is is what is her role in this for you well i i had a, i had a uh, a wonderful reconciliation with my mother before she died and i was able to confront her and tell her everything and we she really did take responsibility in the end and um own her part of it and 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 really apologized to me. Um, mm. I mean, in the book, uh, she is really what she was in life, which was my mother was of that generation where women didn't have power. Men ruled the house. My father was, you know, as I say in the book, the CEO, and at best she was his executive assistant, right? And um, and in some ways she was one of his, his fourth child. I mean, he ruled with fear and terror and dread and violence and everyone kowtowed to him and I think there came from a very poor background um, she didn't have money and she married him and he changed her economic situation and I don't think she had the wherewithal to leave a man with three children at that point in her life where was she going to go what was she going to do at one point in her life, she actually told me that after I confronted her, she realized that she had sacrificed me, that she had basically given me up to keep um, security and, and a kind of comfort and a way of life that she wasn't willing to forfeit. And um, that, you know, was always very sad to me and kind of heartbreaking. But um, I forgive. I've, I've let her go. I've let that go now. You know, it, I, I understand that was that story. And we've moved on to this one, you know. Eve Ensler, uh, th- thank you for this. We have about a minute left, so I want to leave that with you in terms of telling us about uh, uh, you're, you're going on the road with this book. I haven't seen Portland on the schedule. I got, I got Western Coast. Maybe you'll be able to make it to Portland. But t- I know. I'm going to Seattle, but I, I don't know if I'm coming to Portland this time around. But I am going, all, you know, San Francisco and L.A. and Seattle um, and on the West Coast. But I'll be on a, a six-week tour if you go to... Um, the apology, um, apology.com on Instagram, and we're launching a site, theapologybook.com, on the 14th, where people can write in anonymous apologies to people they want to make apologies to, or they can write apologies from their perpetrators to themselves, and they can write in anything. They, like the woman who just called, if she wants to send in her five steps for apology, that would be great, and we'll post it. We want everyone's ideas for what is an apology, and how do we take this moment that we're in, in the anti-violence and Me Too movement, and bring it to the next stage of reckoning and restorative justice so we can move past um, violence and move past having the need to call men out because they will stop behaving in the way they've been behaving, but we'll have a platform and a process to transform what's going on inside them. Eve Ensler, thank you. Thank you so much for your work. Her website is eveensler.org, and her book is The Apology, out on May 15th. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up in this next half hour, Roman Montero is my guest. He's going to be discussing his latest book, Jesus' Manifesto, the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Roman Montero was on my show a couple of years ago talking about Jesus as a communist. So uh, many have attempted to dampen the ethical teachings of Jesus by trying to relativize them or by trying to make them compatible with the wider culture and the dominant ideologies and theologies and whatever. However, according to Roman, 
when understood in its historical context, the, the Sermon on the Plain, uh, his message that is, uh, you know, uh, blessed are the poor, uh, love your enemies, radical ideas. When understood in its historical context, this message was not only incompatible with the wider culture and the dominant ideologies, but stood in opposition to them. So Roman Montero is coming up next on the Beloved Community. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be right back with him.
Tracy Chapman, tell it like it is. This is the beloved community. I'm John Shock. Every second Friday at nine o'clock from nine to ten a.m., we talk about uh, issues of activism, social justice, spirituality. I hope things that matter. Our last guest there, Eve Ensler, with the apology, definitely something that mattered. And my guest on the phone with me now, we got connected with uh, Roman Montero. I think things that matter, too, even though we're delving back into history. Roman Montero is the um, author of the book that we're going to discuss here today about the Jesus Manifesto. He's also the author of All Things in Common, the Economic Practices of the Early Christians, uh, He is an independent scholar, a biblical scholar, historical Jesus scholar, and a a radical scholar, I think. He he takes seriously uh, these messages of uh, give to the poor uh, and uh, what that might mean for society. Roman Montero is on the phone. Roman, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Where are you, by the way? I'm in Norway. Norway. That's why we had a uh, fun getting in touch with you. We didn't. We didn't quite have the codes figured out just yet. So we were. I'm very glad that Tracy Chapman song was about five minutes. So hey, glad to have you with us, Roman. Thank you for uh, for being with me today. Uh, for coming on live uh, with us. Jesus Manifesto: The Sermon on the Plain is your book. Uh, what uh, What do you hope to add to our understanding of the historical Jesus that's been missing uh, with this book? Well, when it comes to the Sermon on the Plain and the, the ethical teaching, teachings of Jesus, uh, what a lot of people have done in the past uh, when, when looking at these teachings is they've kind of taken them as hyperbole, uh, that Jesus wasn't actually uh, expecting his followers to, to actually do what he says. And the reason for this is because when you read, especially the Sermon on the Plain, uh, even more so than the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the teachings just seem so extreme, and, uh, and what he says just seems so radical that it's very easy to kind of think, well, uh, maybe they weren't intended to be uh, you know, taken literally or, or anything like that. But when I've, done, when I've looked at these texts and, and looked at them within their historical context, uh, meaning within the, the context of the, uh, the Jewish world and the Hellenistic world and the various ideological discussions that were going on there, as well as the world of, uh, that Jesus lived in, which was a land uh, under domination by the Roman Empire and uh, both political and economic domination, and what that meant. And the more I looked into it, the more you start to see that actually he, he meant what he said. Uh, he intended these uh, teachings to be taken literally. And, and it's also... That, um, that these teachings, especially in the Sermon on the Plain, are very likely to go back to the historical Jesus. Uh, there's a lot of you know, discussion about in the, in the Gospels what can be ascribed to the historical Jesus and what can't. And I'm quite confident that, uh, that these, this block of teaching actually can go back to the historical Jesus. And uh, Luke largely uh, records in original form of, of this uh, collection of teachings of, of this sermon, as it were. And this uh, this sermon on the plain is, is 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 by the way the Gospel of Luke chapter six verses uh, twenty through forty nine. Well, I'm, let me give you the tough one here. Uh, I think it is. Uh, I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good things to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. Anyone who takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. If anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you did that literally, what would you end up with? You'd end up with nothing or you'd be dead. Exactly. And this is, this is where you have to take in uh, Jesus' uh, apocalyptic and eschatological point of view. Okay. Jesus was, was not a very, he was not a, a modern person. And this uh, idea of apocalypticism was very popular in his time. And it, this sort of view came up usually uh, in times of uh, domination. So, for example, the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Enoch, and we also find this worldview in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the idea is that, that the, uh, the world um, is not the way it's supposed to be, 
and you have sort of wicked powers from the political powers, the economic powers, all the way up to the spiritual world. And then you have the people of God and God. And the idea is that this history of domination will be undone by God and that there'll be a sort of you know, dramatic reversal of, of affairs. So Jesus was expecting or preaching something like this. So a lot of these teachings are with that in mind. But also another thing that uh, needs to be kept in mind is that this culture was very much an honor culture. Um, and this was especially imported from the Roman world, although it was in all the cultures around. And uh, a lot of the things that he's saying here, like, for example, striking on the cheek, um, that was basically a way of showing someone that they were that they could be completely disrespected, uh, dishonored, and basically anything could be done to them. And I recount a story in there in, in my book about uh, someone who got slapped, smacked like that, and uh, went so far as to make a plot to, uh, to kill the person who did it. Uh, and it took a long time for him to do it. So this, these things were taken very seriously. And the reason for this was because society had a certain hierarchy and structure, and this sort of violence was used to maintain that structure. So something like a slap was, was not, it wasn't, it, it was to show that you were inferior. And the idea with, with that commandment, or one of the ideas, is that Jesus is in a sense saying that those honor systems, they don't matter anymore because they're going to be reversed. So you can turn the other cheek because in the end, these honor systems, this, this structure that's being held in place by uh, the empire, the Herodians, that's on its way out. So a lot of these commandments that, that sort of seem uh, extreme in that sense if you think of it in terms of his apocalyptic worldview and, and what that would mean for his listeners, uh, they make sense. He, he has a hope that the world is going to be completely switched. So the rules that apply to society now, they don't apply. Uh, for give to everyone that begs you. Uh, that's also the idea that even property arrangements will be switched. And, Later on in the sermon, he, he appeals to uh, the sabbatical year law in Deuteronomy, and uh, you also have uh, the Jubilee uh, year law, uh, which isn't, uh, which isn't um, talked about here, but it's also uh, within um, that worldview, the apocalyptic worldview, the idea that even property arrangements will be revolutionized. That at this point in time, these laws, such as the sabbatical year law, the Jubilee year law, had been uh, used in these uh, apocalyptic way of thinking as symbolizing uh, society being completely flipped around, uh, put to right uh, by God. Uh, Roman Montero is speaking with me on the beloved community. His book is called Jesus Manifesto, the Sermon on the Plain. It's coming out uh, in a couple of weeks or so. I believe you can, I think you can pre-order it right now. But I want to, uh, we can talk about that in a second, but I want to talk more about this, Roman, because what I'm thinking, uh, I am becoming day by day more apocalyptic. Uh, I, I find out that uh, half the animals are missing since 1970. I, I, you know, I didn't realize that half the animals and plants since I was 10 years old have now vanished from the face of the earth. We spend the United States a thousand billion dollars on militarism. It's everywhere. It's going crazy. This has got to end. And I'm thinking that uh, is, is this ethical teaching of Jesus in a similar kind of thing? It is a it is a checkout kind of ethic of systems as they are working or not working. Well, in a sense, I mean the the yeah the the this, this sort of apocalyptic worldview, which you find is very popular at this time, comes from absolute desperation mm -hmm. uh, in. The, in the setting that Jesus grew up in, it was in a sense similar to today in that there, the poor were getting poorer and poorer, more and more people were suffering from debt, 
uh, having their land removed from them. There was land was being centralized. So even though it was a time of uh, economic growth, for example, with all of Herod's building projects and uh, this sort of economic activity that was happening there, uh, there is evidence that people were um, in a more precarious position, at, at least at the bottom. And so then this sort of way of thinking became popular, and it allowed people to, to envision an alternative, a, a, a new kind of world. And in a sense, you could say, well, you know, maybe it's a checkout. But also, if you look at the, the Sermon on the Plain, these are ethics for people to live out right now. Um, in, in the blessings and woes, he talks about, you know, woe uh, to the rich and, uh, and uh, blessings for the poor. And uh, the, the first three blessings and woes all deal with these kind of material conditions that the, the poor are going to be blessed, that the kingdom of God is for them, and it's, it's bad news for the rich. Uh, but the fourth blessing is for those who are on the side of the Son of Man. The Son of Man uh, here, I believe, refers to the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Uh, it's also in the Book of Enoch, which is an apocalyptic messianic figure who is uh, going to, uh, on God's behalf, sort of set things to right in the world. So here he's saying that there's going to be a, a community of people who are going to be rejected by uh, the system, going to be persecuted by uh, the, the, the system that exists now, the people that are in power now, uh, but ultimately they're on uh, the side of the Son of Man, the side of that eschatological reversal. And the rest of the Sermon on the Plain are ethics for that community. And what they're supposed to do is kind of live out uh, this eschatological vision that, that Jesus has for a future world in the here and now. So that's kind of what's, what's going on here. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Plain, you have uh, the parables, most of which are about uh, practice. In other words, that, that these ethics have to be actually put into practice uh, in the here and now, that, that they are um, normative. They're not just ideals. They're not just a uh, kind of uh, you know, utopian world, no, they're to be, to be lived out in the here and now. And I think that there's actually evidence that uh, this was actually put in place. And in my previous book, All Things in Common, that's just one example, that uh, the, the lending laws and the, the sharing commanded by Jesus was actually put in place in the uh, first century and the second century by the Christians. And uh, basically, they were practicing communism during that time that's just one example yeah um, another yeah. example would be the fact yeah well you use the word manifesto Sorry, in your current book uh jesus's manifesto is that uh uh, ref uh hearkening back to marx uh not specifically uh it, it's more that that's exactly what i think it is it's it's mm -hmm. the it's a declaration of jesus's uh intentions his his viewpoints uh what his his views are uh, what his um, uh, purpose is. So I think this is the closest thing you get uh, in uh, the Gospels to something like a manifesto. This is what he stands for. This is what he wants. Uh, these are his, uh, this is his program, to, in a sense. So in a sense, you could say it's like the Communist Manifesto, or it could also be like the Declaration of Independence, the Declaration of the, the Rights of uh, Man. Um, it, these are just statements of this is what we believe in and this is what we want. And I think that's, that's what Jesus is doing uh, in the Sermon on the Plain. Roman Montero, my guest, he's the author of uh, Jesus' Manifesto, the Sermon on the Plain. Previously, uh, he wrote All Things in Common, the Economic Practices of the Early Christians. Um, do you... Do you find, uh, where do you find this kind of Jesus preached today, or do you? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, th look, there, there are people um, who, there are people who take seriously uh, Jesus' ethics out there. Uh, they're not always the, the loudest people. Um, they're not always the, uh, uh, you know, 
the, the, the ones that are making the, the big splash. But I think for a lot of, especially mainstream Christianity, these things have just been com- completely ignored. And I think the reason is, is because uh, they're just, it's very difficult because we live in a world that's completely alien uh, from these teachings. And uh, in order to live them out, you would, it would require a completely, um, a rejection in a sense of, uh, the, the sort of ideologies and ways things are done in the modern world. But I think uh, when it comes to the first century and the second century, uh, you see this happening. Uh, you see, like, just to give one example, um, the, there's a lot of evidence that in the first few centuries of Christianity, uh, Christians would not join the military. And, and I lay out the evidence for that in my book. And I think this this ties back to, for example, when it says love, uh, love your enemy, you know, don't, uh, don't retaliate, that they took that seriously. And the, some of the church fathers in the early centuries basically said, well, if you're going to uh, join an organization such as the military, such as the legions, where you're required to kill people, well, then you can't really be following that rule. And this is a normative law. And, and the same thing goes with the, uh, the first century uh, sharing, the sort of small c communism. Uh, this was normative. This was something that you uh, would have to live by. This is the kind of person you'd have to be. So uh, in a sense, you see this happening a lot in the first century as in the, and second century. As time goes on, though, you see these sort of ethics get dampened a little bit. Um, especially once Christianity becomes uh, more popular with uh, the powerful, uh, once emperors start becoming uh, Christian, then you start to get a kind of, uh, there's a motivation to to dampen uh, the the ethical uh, portions of Christianity and, uh, and just sort of like brush them to the side. We want to talk another uh, another angle here. You, you talk about mainstream Christians have pretty much d- diluted Jesus's message. Uh, I mean, in, in Christianity in America, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm being too cynical about it, but I think it's basically just the religion of empire uh, with Christian flavoring. Uh, it, it's certainly in, not anything like uh, the ad- radical rejection of of empire and its ills. But um, I want to what we what we do where we do find the apocalyptic. Jesus is kind of in the magical cults, you know, uh, the rapture and the millennia and, and all of that kind of supernaturalistic stuff. Uh, I don't see that in your work mm-hmm. here. Or did, what did you see? Well, what do well, you see no, about supernaturalism I'm, in, in, for example, and even in Jesus's time? Well, well, gee, I mean, of course, in Jesus's time, Jesus lived in a enchanted world. Uh, this was pre-enlightenment. Uh, this was pre-science, this sort of, the, the modern way of thinking, the, the materialist way of thinking just didn't exist. So, so for example, um, uh, for Jesus, you know, he, he believed in, he was an exorcist, for example, he was expelling demons, and, uh, you know, so he, he believed that also that the world was, uh, or that the, the society was run by by Belial, that was a uh, that was also a belief in the um, uh, among some of the Dead Sea Dead Sea Scroll documents. Uh, so this was the world that that Jesus lived and moved in, and and uh, this was everything was tied together in a sense. So it's not like for Jesus that there was that sort of supernatural side, and then you had the sort of you know nitty gritty uh, social issues, economic issues. No, they were all they were all tied together, and that's you know the emperor was considered to be a uh, some sort of divine, almost divine person. So everything was was tied: the religious, the spiritual, the supernatural, and the facts on the ground. So that's why when he says, for example, you know, uh, blessed are the poor, you know, woe to the rich. Uh, the next thing he goes to in the fourth blessing is appealing to son of man traditions, which comes from the apocalyptic literature, which uh, speaks of this sort of cosmic 
battle, you could say, between God and the, and the forces that run the world. So I don't, I, what I do with my work is I basically explain the worldview that Jesus was living in and how he drew on that worldview and, and what he was hoping for based on that. Um, and, and this also goes back to the prophets. Uh, the prophets as well, as well, when they saw injustice happening, when they saw, you know, the poor, the widows, the orphans being neglected, uh, they would appeal to to God and to the judgment of God. So um, when we're sort of reconstructing Jesus' worldview, we have to uh, reconstruct the entire thing, and, and we don't want to sort of make Jesus into a, a modern uh, individual, because he wasn't. Right. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left, but I want you to uh, define, again, a big word for us that you use, eschatological. What does that mean? Eschatological. Basically, the idea uh, in, in eschatology is that the world isn't as it's supposed to be, and that in the future it will become as it's supposed to be. And in, the, in the, the Jewish world at that time, it was the idea that God was going to interfere with the world and make things right, that, that, this, that history had an end point. And um, uh, this was something in, Jesus talked about a lot. He talked about the kingdom of God. That was his, his big message. And that uh, idea was eschatological. The idea that the entire world would be transformed, um, especially uh, Israel would be transformed. So, uh, in a sense, that's that's what it means: is that the world is going to be set uh, to right. And um, the the Sermon on the Plain itself um, is related somewhat is related to that. Also, the ethics, because uh, the ethics, what Jesus was trying to do in the ethics is sort of have a community that would model the way things are supposed to be in the future when things are put to right in the here and now. So uh, a lot of these ethics were designed, like for example, the lending uh, ethics, lend without expecting a return. Uh, if you look at the, the debates going on around at that time around the sabbatical year law, when, when debt- we got about, We got about 30 seconds here, Roman. Okay. What I'm just saying is that it, Jesus was expecting that law. It was a sort of a restoration of the Deuteronomic ideal when it comes to lending, that lending uh, was supposed to build up a community of mutual aid as opposed to be a means towards exploiting uh, one another, which it had become at that point in history. So that's where the eschatology comes in, that it sort of gives a, um, something to look forward to where things are going to be put to right and a model to build society around in the here and now. Roman Montero is the author of Jesus's Manifesto, the Sermon on the Plain. Roman, where can people pick up your book? Well, right now uh, it's at the, the publisher's website at uh, whipfinstock.com. In a couple months, it, I mean a couple weeks, I'm sorry, then it will be available everywhere, you know, Amazon, uh, wherever you, you buy books, you can get a hold of, of the book. But right now, it's uh, just got released, so it takes a couple weeks before it's up on all the platforms. But uh, whipfinstock.com, you can find my book, Jesus' Manifesto, The Sermon on the Plain. And uh, if you wait a couple weeks, it will be up on Amazon and anywhere you, you All right, and, I, and I'll have a link to it uh, on, on this website. Okay, Roman, thank you so much for this, uh, for this work and for being with me today. Roman Montero on The Beloved Community. The Beloved Community is heard every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO. I'm John Shuck. Be well.
And that was the beloved community with your host, John Shuck, who graciously makes his time and energies available to KBOO. You know who else makes things? Other members of our community make things available to KBOO in a way and to an extent that makes sense to them. And I'm privileged, honored, as well as contractually obligated to remind you that KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from the Portland State University Hatfield School of Government, offering a master's degree in public administration. For those who want to create efficient and inclusive cities, government agencies, and nonprofits. More information online at pdx.edu backslash Hatfield School. And from the Portland... And 